The Start On Demand. On demand. Questions arise after the IIU has determined no charges will be laid for the officer who shot and killed 16-year-old Aisha Hudson. Is there a power shift on Wall Street due to all these meme traders who are causing chaos on the markets? GM is moving entirely to electric cars by 2035. Winnipeg Jets legend Morris Lukowicz joined us to talk about how much of an impact crowds have on the game. And what's your favorite TV town? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Friday, January 29th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It's Friday. It's the weekend. You might want to watch a movie on the weekend. But, Greg, yesterday you had sort of an impressive Couch Potatoes-esque movie binge, but uh, not necessarily for the purposes of entertainment. I was trying to re-educate myself <laughs> on what happened in the mortgage crisis back in 07, 08, after all this news with uh, GameStop and BlackBerry and uh, what's the other stock that's being... Uh, AMC? AMC movie theaters. That, like, I can't even believe they still have a stock uh, just with what's every, everything that's going on and uh, the, the supposed manipulation and... Uh, Everybody getting involved off this Reddit board. Anyway, long story short, I really am angry all over again about what happened in the mortgage crisis in 07 and 08 in the United States and the fact that they don't seem to have learned anything. Regulations are only popular for the big boys when other people, are, uh, as I said yesterday, are storming the castle. Their answer is, well, let's burn the castle down because now the secret's out about how they do some of these things. The secrets were let out, Loren, I would say in 07, 08, but no one was arrested, no regulation was put in place, and the, and the markets are running wild again. But at least this time, there are some quote-unquote amateurs doing some of the manipulation and banding together to do some things to to shake things up. But lo and behold, when things got a little bit too hot in the kitchen, what did they do? They shut the kitchen yesterday and locked some small-time investors out of their own accounts. I'm so angry about this. Yeah, and the average investor, this is really about them speaking loudly right now, right? Uh, that's the headlines and, and, and the synopsis and all sorts of uh, news articles right across the globe right now because there's this kind of collective message out there. There's a message going on that's saying, like, listen, pay attention to us. We're coming for you. We know your game. We learned how to play it. Now we're playing it really well, and you want to call a penalty on us. Men, we're using a lot of analogies and metaphors this morning kitchens and castles and penalties but still the point is is that there's this group that learned has been learning how to trade uh, as average investors on wall street in the stock market uh, they figured out the game of short selling which is complicated for me to explain but they figured it out and they tried to make some money off of it and then yesterday in what appears to be an effort to slow them down or curb their 
ways to make money. They were many of them were locked out of their accounts. The app that many were using, which was called Robinhood, take from the rich, give to the poor, that app shut down their ability to yeah. even access their accounts or trade those uh, key uh, stocks uh, on the market. And so people are furious. Lawsuits have been filed, and basically the message is. We're coming for you. We're, the little guy is coming for you now. So I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. Everybody from Elon Musk to Mark Cuban to Bernie Sanders are speaking out about this. And I wonder where this is going to go with Congress. And so after seven, we're going to speak to uh, um, the editor at large from CNET about what's been going on, what to make from it. And, you know, why should the rest of us care? Because it seems at this point, you know, you feel like you feel I don't I don't trade. I don't, I'm not involved with that. You know, what, mm. What's going on? Well, it's really a story of a David versus Goliath, and it's also a story of all of us at some point, whether it's your pension or not, have money somewhere on right. the market. So how is it being traded and spent and used? Right. And the whole notion that once you're on the inside now and you've figured out the game, all of a sudden the rules are going to change. So if you want to educate yourself a little bit and entertain yourself at the same time. I watched the big short on Netflix. It's got Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, Steve Carell. It's the retelling of Michael Burry's story of how he bet against the U.S. housing market. And then on the other side of it, if you want something a little bit more documentary-ish, uh, on Prime, I watched Inside Job. Matt Damon is the narrator. Charles Ferguson is a brilliant guy. He's the writer-director of that uh, documentary and it really goes into the behind the scenes of how that all came down in 07, 08. Uh, both movies are fascinating for different reasons and entertaining for different reasons. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Premier Brian Pallister addressed the media yesterday. He was talking flood protection, but at one point called out the Winnipeg Free Press and questioned reporter Larry Cush's professionalism after a question regarding the board chair of the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority working remotely in Arizona. So here's how that went down. But, but he, he holds a pretty um, important position. As the chair of the board he, uh, of the WRHA, he's responsible for overseeing the operations of the executive and of the WRHA. So your health minister said yesterday that the government would not remove Mr. McWhorter from his position. Is that the government's position still? Will he not face any sanctions? And is this a question of folks in high places being allowed to travel with impunity if they have the right connections in government? Hardly, but the question and the way it was posed, Larry, demonstrate yet again uh, your paper's tendency, whether it's editorially dictated to its uh, reporters or not, uh, to focus rather harshly on uh, negativity and, uh, and to be critical of the government. Uh, you published uh, the fifth story on my uh, work in Ottawa last year, uh, this week. Uh, you referenced it uh, uh, in a way that created the uh, impression that I'm somehow disrespectful of taxpayers, and I resent that, Larry, because it's false. I've never flown on the taxpayer on a business class ticket or first class ticket. I cover most of my costs myself. And when I see a report like today in a Toronto paper outlining the Trudeau family's vacation in 19 costing taxpayers over $200,000, uh, but I don't see reference of it anywhere in the free press, yet I see you 50 times reporting on my family going to the same place, Costa Rica, without costing the taxpayer a nickel uh, I have to ask myself, is that professional journalism, Larry? 
I have to ask myself that question, and I think the answer to that question, honestly, is no, it is not. Thank you. Snag that audio, by the way, from media colleague Chris D. So, Greg, mm. um, we were wondering, you know, do we talk about this this morning? But you, you sort of have an interesting take on this. Well, yeah, you know, I know it can be easy pickings to pick on the premier, any political leader of any province, city, country, for that matter. Uh, they're out in the media all the time. They're out in the public. They're speaking their mind, answering questions uh, for the most part if they're doing their job. I don't think the... First of all, the Premier answered that question at all. He took the opportunity to take a shot at one of our colleagues. But here's the thing that resonates with me, Loren. It feels like a little bit of an inside look at how the Premier deals with people overall, potentially. He seems to be very good at keeping score, obviously holding a grudge, and just this whole notion of, I know what you're doing, I know what you're saying, I'm watching you. I would hate to ever forget about a favor I owed this guy. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, look, I, I get it. it's a hard job, and this is perhaps the hardest time ever to be a leader with everything that's going on with this pandemic. And day after day, there's growing questions and criticisms and concerns. So I get that. But putting that aside, it's it's your job to lead us through it as a premier, and it's your job to answer the questions. And so, you know, the Canadian Association of Journalists called him out yesterday saying for him, for him to question the integrity of a long-standing excellent reporter like Larry is is not acceptable. But more than that, the question is valid. The Winnipeg Regional Health Authority chairperson who traveled to Arizona in this pandemic, after the Premier has con- went on record in December and over and over again saying, please stay home, please don't travel, please do the right thing, he, he needs to be called out for that. And so, yes, the Premier did go on to say he was disappointed yesterday, but the question was valid at the end of the day. And so there's all sorts of conversations to be had about the way he handles questions that maybe criticize people within his government or himself. Um, but this is the chairperson of a nearly $2 billion corporation, if you want to call it that. It's the mm-hmm. largest health authority in this province. And so when someone in a, health, a high-level health position, which, yes, it's a volunteer board position, does this there's questions that deserve to be asked and and you know more than that i think that he, what that what that comment showed is that he came prepared to answer that question he knew it was going to get asked and he wanted to get out his grievances about the prime minister traveling all over the place and the taxpayers dime and and people's always asking him about costa rica he he wanted that moment i and thought so festivus it, was in december why the airing the your grievances, grievances yesterday was, it, yeah it was like you know he looked at the wall and and said yes i know i'm gonna get asked this today it's now my chance to get out a b c d <laughs> z and i'm gonna go for it so let us know what you think i mean like i said this this is it, it's hard to be a leader but leaders lead by example and well, not by they put their hand others. up though they put them yeah. they put their hand up they say they want to be leaders and i just not to interrupt you loren but it just i just wonder if this is indicative if the premier is prepared to do this on a on a big stage like this yesterday with everybody watching what's it, how's he treat people behind closed doors Kling McGarry and McNabb coming up in our next segment. What's your favorite TV town? Loren's going to tell us why we're talking about this uh, because she sent us uh, a little bit of a rabbit hole the other day and uh, we've, already, we've got a whole bunch of topics set up for the next three weeks so we're excited <laughs> about that. Greg binge watches intelligence movies. I went down a rabbit hole of pure 
recreational bliss this week. Well, good. I mean, we all need those distractions, right? And speaking of that, Couch Potatoes coming up at 737 with a couple of ideas on what you can distract yourself with this weekend. But we start this out half hour with this. It's bad to say because I knew what the decision was going to be before hearing the report. With the decision given by the investigation unit, I feel complete anger. I feel the report was unclear and one-sided. I feel frustrated and disappointed with the outcome. That was the father of Aisha Hudson, struggling to contain his tears as he explained why he did not trust the investigation that concluded no charges would be laid against the Winnipeg police officer who shot and killed his daughter last year. The 16-year-old was shot after a chase in a stolen Jeep following an alleged robbery at a liquor store in April of 2020. Hudson was one of three Indigenous people to be shot by Winnipeg police last spring. Global's Marnie Blunt with more now on the investigation that followed and the family's reaction. I've tried to pray and hope for the best, but also prepare myself for the worst. But as a parent... You can never prepare yourself for this. The pain is beyond words, but the parents of 16-year-old Aisha Hudson are mustering up the courage to call for justice. Aisha died in an officer-involved shooting near Lajmodi and Fermor in April. We would never wish this on another family. Aisha was in a stolen vehicle that had allegedly been involved in a robbery at the Sage Creek Liquor Mart, and now no criminal charges will be laid against the officer. The facts themselves dictate the, the outcome. A report from the Independent Investigation Unit outlined multiple interviews from witnesses, officers at the scene, video footage, and a use of lethal force report. This investigation was a complete and thorough review of all available evidence. Uh, I'm satisfied that uh, no stone was left unturned. The officer at the centre of the case declined to be interviewed, but provided a statement, which outlined the incident and the moment he made eye contact with Aisha before the shooting. Details that are difficult for the family. But a parent to watch that video over and over to hear those those gunshots, take your daughter's life. The family now wanting their message to be heard loud and clear. I know we're going to fight and continue to fight. I will not step, stop fighting for my daughter. Now that the IIU investigation is complete, the family is calling for a public inquiry into police-related deaths involving Indigenous peoples. Marnie Blunt, Global News. There's a lot to unwrap and to consider here, and, and key in this is that video that was referenced, that civilian video that was taken on a phone. Zane Tesler is the civilian director for the IIU, and he says that video was examined extensively and found it showed the officers were in danger of being hit by the car police say was being driven by Hudson. The video also shows uh, that the vehicle was placed into uh, reverse and began to move uh, towards uh, officers that were stationed in and around it, and then started to move uh, in a forward uh, manner as well uh, towards, uh, or potentially towards officers that were uh, in the vicinity. Um, the video itself um, had audio, and you can actually uh, you hear uh, the two shots that were fired. Uh, they were about three seconds apart, at which point after the second shot, the vehicle comes to a, a stop and the occupants are then removed. 
So that video was key, but the, also a dozen people were interviewed in the IIU's investigation. And as you heard Marnie Blunt explain, the officer who fired his gun was not interviewed. He was actually asked to be spoken to, and he declined to speak to the IIU. The union unit says he did provide notes and a prepared statement. But Winnipeg lawyer Corey Sheffman, and who also represents families uh, like the Hudsons in, in cases like these, he's not representing them in this one, but he, he has extensive experience. He says the fact that that officer didn't have to be interviewed and is, in his words, a travesty. The police have um, higher rights than any normal citizen has when it comes to uh, investigations of crimes that police commit. And they're not even, in, in, mo- in many cases, complying with those, um, you know, much, uh, uh, with those obligations, even though they're, they're much less uh, restrictive than for the rest of us. Sheffman says 66% of the people who die in police-involved shootings are Indigenous. Aisha's father, William Hudson, says it points to what he believes is a much larger problem. You know, I find systemic racism strongly is strongly in, I'm not going to say, uh, well, you know what? It's strongly in the police force and what's going on right now. We asked Winnipeg Police Chief Danny Smythe to join us this morning, but a request was declined. He did release a statement saying the teen's death was a tragedy and added the circumstances led to a split-second decision to use lethal force to stop the scenario from escalating further. All of us would have liked to would like the outcome to be different. Pardon me. And I think that's where we're at right now. Of course, everybody would like the outcome to be different, but is there more to be learned from this? And so I feel like when Aisha's father brought up systemic racism, I don't want to speak for him, but it was almost like he struggled to say it because he knows as soon as you say those words, people just go crazy and say, of course, you're going to go down that road. But is there the possibility of even just a bias or an inherent bias uh, when, when you see a certain individual or on the street or in a crime does that play into it what more can we learn from it on that and the process questions Greg I think are good ones just about the interviews and who is and is not spoken to in these investigations Mackling McGarry and McNabb Loren McNabb what is the impetus for the conversation we're about to have well I stumbled across the show Parenthood on Amazon streaming services last week. And I've seen the whole series before, but as you know, that doesn't stop me from watching things over and over again. And so I started re-watching Parenthood, which stars Laurel Graham. Graham. And first of all, in Parenthood, they have this awesome house that the grandparents and parents live at with like all these lights in the bush. I think it's in San Francisco, maybe near Berkeley, California area. And it's just this beautiful, sprawling space. I was like, oh, I love this house. And then I started thinking about Laurel Graham. And I've got a clip here you can play to see if people recognize what led me down this rabbit hole. Did anyone recognize this? I don't. Uh, nope. 
the beautiful. No, everyone's gonna give me a no. That's Gilmore Girls and the mother-daughter team from the series that really dominated the early 2000s. Uh, they lived in a town called Stars Hollow, and it was ridiculous. Everyone knew everybody. It was always doing crazy festivals. They're all in each other's business. There was apparently only one diner that served okay food. There was Pat's uh, dancing. There was town hall meetings, and it was this glorious place. And so it got me thinking: Is there a TV town that you'd like to live in? And mine was. Stars Hollow, and then I felt the need to share that with you, Brett, and here we are. Well, and and now we're. I think next week we're going to talk about favorite uh, TV spot to go to, like maybe a bar or a restaurant, and then I think we also might discuss favorite TV home. Where we, which home would you live in? But let's focus on the town today, Cam Poitras. Let me start with you. Well, I, I kind of I couldn't decide, so I decided on a place that I certainly wouldn't want to live. <laughs> The entire world of The Walking Dead? The entire Dead. world of The Walking Dead. I enjoyed this show in the first couple seasons, and then I had to stop watching because it was just horrible. I wanted to watch them, you know, have go to school and, you know, raise crops and pet little lambs after a while. I just wanted them to live in happiness, and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse for them, and I had to stop watching the show. Alexandria was actually a pretty cool place, and it was one of the seasons they, they lived in this, like, fortified community uh, with, a, I think it had a school and a church and, and houses and beds. Yeah, before but how many horrible things happened? Oh, so many horrible <laughs> things. So many horrible things involving a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Oh, yes. my. But I, I just wanted them to live in happiness. I would have watched that show for the re- for seasons of them just living happily. Okay. Yeah, I, that reminds me. I think I have 16 episodes uh, banked on my PVR. I got to get caught up on that. Yeah, that's uh, who wants to live in the zombie apocalypse? Good call, uh, Cam Porters. Uh, Jeff Braun, what about you? Uh, oh, for me, I feel like I'm cheating on this because I, I, my answer is the town on Magnum PI, which is Honolulu, Hawaii. <laughs> 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 I, I just couldn't think of anything that beats it, you know? I mean, oh. uh, most of the TV towns, and I, I haven't watched Gilmore Girls, but I couldn't say, but like Pawnee, Indiana, or Springfield, and The Simpsons, or whatever, they're just populated with what, such weirdos and crazy people that even if the little town looks nice, the, the people in it would drive you nuts, so most places you just immediately get crossed off the list, but I think I, I, think I could you know, find a spot in Honolulu I wouldn't mind at all. Well, hey, tough to go wrong with Hawaii. And plus, too, the, uh, Hawaii was the setting for one of your other favorite shows, which was Lost. Yes, but again, like modern-day actual Hawaii would be much more pleasant than everything that happened on Lost. Yeah, Robin Masters' estate is a little bit different than what they were dealing with in Lost. You don't want to have a beer with a smoke monster? Forte, what about you? Oh, he's even got the music cued. Oh, yeah. What's the name of the town? Stranger Things, the name of the town is Hawkins, Indiana. Hawkins, that's right. But to me, it just it brings me back to, you know, being a childhood and jumping on your bikes because it's based in the 80s with the kids. And, you know, it'd be awesome to be a kid again and being in a small town and jumping on your bike and hanging out with your friends and having it's a good time and, get, and, and get, getting and scared and going on adventures <laughs> with demons and monsters. <laughs> the other time I was going to say was uh, Derry Maine from It. Uh, it's, the kind of the exact, it's the exact same thing. Are you thing. crazy? I am crazy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's just picking all the worst spots. What's the most heinous place you could live? Or <laughs> Maybe I do. Plus, Hawkins, Indiana, you got to imagine they have lots of cheesies uh, on deck at any <laughs> given point. So 
Is, is that where it's from originally? I, well, the Hawkins Cheesies? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they made in Manitoba? No, yeah. it's like Belleville, Ontario. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, pardon me. Why yeah. do you know that, Cam? I just yeah, know I, stu- <laughs> I know stupid stuff like that. <laughs> G-Mac, what about you? I don't know if this is going to play or not. Dawson's Creek? Well, listen. Joey takes a rowboat from house to house. Dawson's got that ladder up yeah, against. Yeah, goes into his window all well, the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty easygoing uh, place there. It feels as though there are no rules for, for the high school kids. Doesn't Pacey live on his own in the yeah. boat? Like In a boat, man. That sounds pretty good to me. So uh, <laughs> I, most of you probably figured I was going to say Genoa City. That's what oh, I thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Young and But it's cold there. They have winter. Yes, it's close to Chicago. But Wisconsin, nope. I'm picking, uh, well, I'm taking uh, hypothetical Cape Side. Okay. <laughs> good call on playing that theme. It's a couple of good themes. I always, Gilmore Girls, Loren, I, I always wanted to watch it, but I just never got into it. Did you watch the reboot? Or the- oh, did I watch the reboot? A couple times. Yeah. God, I've had a lot of time on my hands, Brett. Yes. You'd hate it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I I I don't. I think I'm I'm kind of curious to check it out. It, it's like if you eat cotton candy and you like the first bites, but it's like hurts that tooth eventually. It's too sweet. Oh well, <laughs> that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes I like to lighten things up. I don't. It doesn't always have to be uh, death and mayhem. Like for example, I think the town for me, and this comes from like a really uh, sad show. The show is called Broadchurch. It's set in the in the in England. And it's a tragic story, but it's this kind of seaside town and uh, there's this massive cliff rock face that overlooks the ocean and it just looks like a really peaceful spot. It looks almost like the Shire, you know, with rolling hills and stuff like that. And uh, one of the characters lives in a house right on the ocean and uh, the edge of the ocean and it just looks like a neat place to be. Nice and quiet, peace and quiet, but like I said, horrible things happen there. So (laughs) I guess that's part of the theme. Cam wants to avoid the Apocalypse. Forte wants to go get eaten by it, and I want to hang out with a bunch of sad people in Broadchurch. So text us your favorite TV town at 204-780-6868 and we'll share them throughout the show. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb. Hey, uh, Loren, looks like I might have to start watching Gilmore Girls because I have been commanded by news overlord Kim Lawson, who texted me to say, you must watch Gilmore Girls. So She also texted me in all caps, I love Gilmore Girls. So yes, I guess, I, mean, I when, guess you must. When the overlord issues a, a command, like, you know, I feel like I could be uh, smited if I, is that the right term? Smited? Yes. Yes, Smote? Sure. Tis a decree from the sounds of things. <laughs> also, by the way, if anybody has any pictures of the wolf moon from last night oh, uh, and this morning. Oh, beautiful. I'm going to send you one right now. Do you want my picture? Sure. But yeah, if anybody has, like if anybody has a, got one with like a really fancy camera, feel free to send it our way, 204-780-6868. We'd love to post it on our 680CJOB Instagram because, uh, yeah, that was quite spectacular as I was waiting for the cab this morning. And uh, reminder, 715, next segment, we will meet our next qualifier for warm-up with on-time furnace. But we start this hour... On the markets, as you may have heard by now, GameStop, a struggling video game retailer, has found itself at the center of a Wall Street tug-of-war between hedge funds and 
amateur investors. Now, Wall Street Bets is the anonymous chat room on the Reddit platform that is widely credited or blamed by commentators for driving the investor pile up into GameStop and other stocks that have seen a wild volatility over the past few days. Wall Street Bets founder Jamie Rogozinski has no qualms comparing the investing frenzy around companies like GameStop, BlackBerry and AMC Entertainment to gambling, Loren. So the shares of all three of those stocks that you mentioned sank yesterday as online brokerages Robinhood Markets Inc. and Interactive Brokers restricted trading in several social media-driven stocks that had soared this week. And that move infuriated investors who saw it as yet another slap in the face to the non-institutional, to the average, to the individual investors. And so everybody's watching and waiting to see what will happen this morning. And we're joined now by Ian Scherer, editor-at-large for CNET. Good morning, Ian. Ian, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. We got okay. you. It's been. A f- <laughs> I have to say, I've never paid as much attention to the stock market as I have over the past 48 hours. And right? how we got how we got here is so fascinating. Is it fair to call this a power shift on Wall Street? Is that what's happening? Uh, it's hard to tell. You know, we're in the middle of a very unusual moment. And uh, I mean, heck, I feel like I've been saying that for the last five years. But I think what's been particularly interesting about GameStop is that uh, it was a moment where, you know, the struggling video game retailer uh, has been bet against so hard, right? Uh, Wall Street, at one point, the what are called short sellers, right, the people betting against its success, had made their bets so badly that this uh, group on, on Reddit, the social, me- uh, social network, had realized that if they could just push the stock up a little bit, they would force Wall Street to reset uh, all of their bets. And that's essentially what happened. The stock's gone up and up and up. And it's turned into this very weird war between these people on social media and these people who are betting against GameStop's future. Now, it's a very unusual situation with GameStop. It was the most shorted stock on the market, which means that it literally was the one that everyone was betting would fail. And, uh, you know, there aren't that many other stocks out there like that. So power shift, I don't know. But it's definitely interesting to watch. And it does say something about how investing is becoming more and more mainstream. You mentioned social media, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez expressed her outrage on Twitter about Robin Hood and other platforms locking out their customers yesterday. And um, Ted Cruz actually retweeted in agreement right. with that. Yep. What does that tell you about where we're at? I mean, when you can get two people that diametrically opposed on pretty much everything together and agreeing on something, you are in trouble. And I have a feeling Robin Hood in particular may be one of the uh, victims of all of this. Well, they caused it themselves. But, you know, what's going to be interesting is that when we start, you know, kind of looking at what happened, right, and whenever this ends, and it will end because GameStop, the company, hasn't changed fundamentally from a month ago, right? It's still a struggling video game retailer. Its value is nowhere near what the stock is at. But right now the stock is about a battle, not about the value of GameStop. So when that's all over, there is going to be some investigation and people trying to figure out what had happened over the last week, because it's very clear that odd things have happened in the market and that some of these, uh, some of these brokers, including Robinhood, have acted in ways that don't entirely make sense. And if they can't explain themselves, they're going to be in heaps of trouble. 
didn't happen after the mortgage crisis of 07, 08. Is there any reason to believe this initiates a genuine look into investment instruments like shorting and other engineered investment instruments? You have nailed the the issue. You know, part of the conversation that's happening among these uh, people on Reddit, and the reason that a lot of them have held on to their their money, even though they've made fortunes, right? Some of them are in the tens of millions of dollars, but they haven't sold because they want to stick it to Wall Street, which is really fascinating to watch, is that they feel like Wall Street has gotten away with murder for years. And these are people who are, you know, a lot of them are millennials, right? They grew up in the Great Recession. They came out of college just as the economy was falling apart. They're very angry, and they feel like there hasn't been a sense of justice in the way that the financial system works for years. So a lot of them are are really hoping that this pushes some changes. And I have a feeling something will change because even Wall Street is complaining, although they feel like they are being treated poorly, uh, even though they created the system that has allowed this all to happen. A lot of people not happy about that last sentiment, the fact that they're even complaining. We only have about 30 seconds, but I'm curious what it says overall about this system, if it can be disrupted seemingly easy like this. Well, I mean, I think that part of this is that because investing has become so easy and so cheap, right, you can actually invest without having to pay any commissions. That's really what's changed everything. I think it's going to cause some changes on Wall Street. But, you know, at the end of the day, I and you and all these other people, we don't have billions of dollars to move the market. And that is going to be, you know, it's hard to get everyone to agree on something. So I don't know if this is going to happen again, but it's very interesting to watch. Ian Scherer, editor-at-large for CNET, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ian, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated, sir. Absolutely. Take care. And I guess that would be the best spot to park your car if you had an electric car, Loren. Yeah, if you had an electric car, uh, do you want an electric car? We're actually asking that question this morning because we're trying to figure out What's the appetite for electric cars in Manitoba and Canada? Asking because one of the biggest names in cars is making a huge shift over the next decade. General Motors announcing it's setting a goal to sell all its new cars, SUVs, light pickup trucks, with zero tailpipe emissions by 2035. What does that mean? Basically, it's looking at an all-electric future, Greg. Yeah, but are Manitobans ready to buy into that future? Umar Dicko is the chief economist with the Canadian Automobile Automobile Dealers Association. It's a lot of syllables there. Good morning, Umar. Good morning. How are you? Doing A-OK. So uh, let's put the GM plans aside. Obviously, their move is 14 years away. Overall, in a province where we have all the infrastructure to plug our cars in, because many of us plug our cars in uh, probably 50 or 60 nights a year already, uh, is there an appetite for this in our province? Absolutely. I can tell you that the future is there um, and our industry understands that there is an appetite in uh, in uh, Manitoba for electric vehicles. Over the past couple of years, demand for these vehicles have been increasing consistently uh, in Manitoba and that follows the same trends and aligns with the rest of Canada as well. Although uh, compared to other provinces like British Columbia and Quebec, demand is still low in Manitoba, but it's, still, it's, it's increasing very much. 
So, yeah, with this move being 14 years away, uh, I mean, it does speak to a bigger trend. You know, we heard last year California's governor said he was going to ban the sale of new gas-powered passenger cars and trucks by 2035. Several states like Massachusetts said they would follow suit. But how many electric cars were even sold in Canada last year? Uh, We don't have the uh, complete picture of that yet, but I can tell you that the the electric vehicle market has performed better uh, than the overall market. To to put that in context, the overall market has declined by 20% in 2020, and right now we have indication that the electric vehicle market has only declined by 7%. So, and we have passed, uh, we're past the record of 100,000 electric vehicles on uh, on our roads in Canada as of now. What are you hearing still, though, from consumers when it comes to the sticking points about why they may or may not be interested in electric vehicles? Umar, I, I know even personally we've talked about it in our own home for years. We'd like to make that move, but we have questions about, you know, cold weather. I think that comes up often in batteries and, and even just the infrastructure that might be in place to get us from point A to B in an electric vehicle. What, what are consumers saying to you when it comes to their questions and maybe concerns or hopes for the future? Yeah, absolutely. Some of the main obstacles to uh, consumers buying electric vehicles first is the upfront cost. Electric vehicles tend to cost a bit more than the normal uh, internal combustion vehicle. And that is why when we're having those discussions with the government, we're always putting the emphasis on bringing in incentives to encourage people to, bring, to, to buy these vehicles. And we're very pleased that the federal government has done so. And there, is a, uh, there are provincial incentive programs in Quebec and in British Columbia. And we want other provinces to, uh, to jump on that as well. The second is really the awareness about those vehicles. I can tell you that the industry has invested billions of dollars over the past decade uh, to ensure that the technology of electric vehicle can continue to advance. Right now, the ranges of these vehicles, that the battery that you can sustain on driving these vehicles have, has been also increasing. Um, and the final, final obstacle to uh, purchasing electric vehicles is the charging stations. We need a proper network on charging stations in Canada, and the federal government has to work with the provincial and territorial government to bring that about. It takes about five minutes to fill up a car, uh, and it could take 20 to 25 minutes to recharge a battery of an electric vehicle, but that is also improving uh, in the market, and we're very excited. Yeah, I know somebody who has an electric car, absolutely loves it, has zero complaints about it. Uh, Umar, uh, I, this might be a little bit of a sticky question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, right. <laughs> electric vehicles are notorious for having fewer parts. Uh, the mechanics involved are obviously less complicated than the internal combustion engine. Is that? Yeah. Is there any resistance there from the automo- de- Automobile Dealers Association in terms of, well, gee whiz, uh, our our revenue with regard to servicing vehicles might go down over the years if we get to this point. Uh, Absolutely. This is something that the industry uh, is aware of, uh, particularly with electric vehicles. And this is something that our dealers are thinking ahead, looking forward uh, to find ways to provide other services to to, uh, consumers with their electric vehicles. Even an electric vehicle still needs a new set of tires, uh, in the winter, changing tires here and there. So there, there are still services that we can provide for electric vehicles, like charging station, changing the batteries, and those services that our dealers can, can provide. But we're certainly um, looking to that and uh, looking forward to it. How far can you drive in an electric vehicle before it dies? Oh, that, that would depend on the model. But uh, typically right now, the, ran- the ranges of these vehicles have, have, been, have been increasing.
I can't tell you, depending on the models, but you can probably go uh, to 500 kilometers on the battery on some of the models. And so when it comes to that distance, you know, you also get questions, and I said it earlier about the cold, and so we just had a listener even say now that, you know, they have questions about how the heat might work at minus 25. And so speaking specifically to a Manitoba climate, is that a concern at all, or does it operate the same? Yeah, that is all part of uh, raising awareness about electric vehicles. I think they operate the same. Um, and we, we have to get that into the mind of, of people. People that have electric vehicles completely love it, and they have it here in the cold as well. And I, I believe that they operate, operate the same, and we have to do um, the process of educating people around electric vehicles. Umar Dicko is the chief economist with the Canadian Automobile Dealers Association, joining us live on 680-CJOB. Umar, thank you for this. Thanks for having me on. And one question I've got, too, uh, just in the, this general plan, and they were talking about banning the sale of new cars. Well, mm. what, how, like, what will be the grace period to allow gas, gas-powered cars to stay on the road? Like, are they going to have gas stations just forever, just you can't go out and buy a new one? Yeah, that's a good question. This is like you're speaking to the move in California and, of course, Massachusetts, we referenced that are going to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars, it's still going to take decades to phase that out, right? right? It's, that would take a long, long time. So you're still going to see gas stations on the road, but eventually they might convert to, like you see at different points now, you know, where there's just the plug-in stations uh, that, that have to be provided and supplied. You don't make the same amount of money off those, I don't think, but all part of the future. And what if you've got a classic car? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously looking, as you mentioned, decades down the road, but what if you've got some classic car, you're going to have to retrofit that with an electric engine? I've thought about doing that with the MG. I'll be really honest about that. Really? Uh, yeah, I think it would be fantastic as an electric vehicle. You're right. That's it's- why it hasn't hit the road. <laughs> <laughs> Major plans afoot. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Hey, a heads up that starting on Monday, February 1st, for two weeks, we're going to have a Global News Health Radio Series airing Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for both of those weeks. This year, the focus is on our mental health during COVID-19. The Global News Health Series is going to tackle mental health issues that we're experiencing during the pandemic. Monday's story is going to focus on how distancing has taken its toll on our mental health. Other topics are going to include why we are hardwired to be with other people at nearly any cost and what's the human biology behind that. That's actually produced by Tristan Field-Jones, our very own TFJ. Uh, Mental illness and addiction during COVID, teen mental health, exercise and stress and dealing with the isolation of just having COVID methods of coping when ostracized by family and friends. So that starts Monday right here on 680 CJOB and across the Chorus Radio Network. GMAC, uh, I understand there's some great news uh, coming from the St. Boniface Hospital Foundation Mega Million Choices Lottery. Well, I would say the news is from just from the general public and their support, but you're right, Brett. Uh, I got an update just in the last half an hour about how things went last night and yesterday. Thanks to everyone who's supporting this lottery unprecedented support for this we had our best sales uh, day ever uh, for this lottery the main lottery is now over in two weeks 85 percent sold out and we are in fact out of the eight pack of tickets so uh, the ability to buy tickets still exists in one uh, a single ticket, two packs, and we have uh, three packs available. And the record-breaking 50-50 is now over a million dollars. It's touching a million fifty 
$8,000. So I uh, just want to thank everyone for their continued support on this and just really stepping up this year uh, to make this lottery as successful as it's ever been. And if you want to get a ticket, the website is stbmegamillionchoices.ca. Go have a look at the grand prizes and uh, you'll probably find yourself just as distracted as Loren and I tend to get <laughs> when we do these interviews where we're like, ooh, there's a pontoon boat and you get another boat and a thank motorcycle. Thank God the lotteries don't include fried chicken fast. Like, what if it was a combo? We'd be like, God, I could really use a burger, right? Oh, that cottage. We could eat the burger at the cottage, Brett. Maybe that's an idea. Maybe one of the prize packages could include, like, your own uh, chicken uh, chicken Charlie's franchise or something like that. Then you'd have all the chicken that you wanted and, and make a little bit of money on the side. I don't know. Hey, speaking of festivals coming up in our next segment, we're going to speak with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. The Winnipeg New Music Festival is on this week. It started on Saturday. Night two is Tuesday. And the final night is tonight. So we'll tee that up for you. But right now, the question of the day at CJOB.com, which is brought to you by Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness, 204-832-6243. Do you believe there is systemic racism in the Winnipeg Police Service? And at CJOB.com, the results so far are 73% no, 27% yes. So you can cast your vote at CJOB.com. And uh, Loren, we have gotten quite a bit of feedback this morning at 204-780-6868. Yeah, and I really want to appreciate people for listening and, and weighing in on this because we know how hard of a story this is to hear. We know that there are opinions on a wide variety of fronts. You know, there was a listener who texted to talk about, hey, what about this officer involved? How is he doing? You know, no one wants to go into this work to take someone's life. And so there's that perspective coming at us this morning. There's also the perspective uh, of a listener, Robert, who asked, was lethal force really needed? And and the determination from the IIU was, yes, you know, that the, the car was moving back and forth, that it was after this police chase, there was a fear that it might uh, hurt someone or hurt the officers who were surrounding it. And so that was their conclusion that no criminal charges should be laid. And then, of course, uh, Brett, you mentioned the idea of racism. And the father was wondering, you know, is, is that part of the problem here? Because Aisha's death was one of three Indigenous deaths at the hands of a police shooting in the spring of 2020. And so people are some people are asking that question. We got a text from a listener who said, I'm an Indigenous person. I do not fear for my life when I get pulled over by police. I don't feel racism from them either, either because I don't participate in criminal activities. It goes on to say that they were in a stolen car and were trying to feel, flee the police. They write that as an Indigenous person, I say thank you to the Winnipeg police for stopping that chase and making the road safe. And so there are people who are questioning why she had to die. People are questioning the actions and people are saying maybe the actions were right. So there's all sorts of opinions on this one. I, I do want to play a clip. Brett, if you don't mind, I've put it in the wheel there. This is from Corey Sheffman, because one of the bigger questions this morning that we're working to get answered is really the there, it's, racism and, and the questions about that. I mean, that's going to be a discussion that goes on for months, if not years to come. But the immediate question right now from some people is about the process of the IIU investigation. And so Corey Sheffman is a Winnipeg lawyer, and he is really upset by the fact that the officer who was involved in the shooting, who fired the two shots, declined to be interviewed by the IIU. He did provide a statement, but Corey Sheffman doesn't believe that's enough. The police have um, higher rights than any normal citizen has when it comes to uh, investigations of crimes that police commit. And they're not even, in, in, mo- in many cases, complying with those, um, you know, much, uh, uh, with those obligations, even though they're, they're much less uh, restrictive than for the rest of us. 
So, Greg, we had reached out to the lawyer who was involved in representing some of the police uh, forces and the police members, sorry, in cases like these, and he was not available to speak with us. We've also reached out to the union, and, and we'll let you know if we can get them on at any point. In the meantime, Bill, a uh, listener, texted with this counterpoint saying the officer involved is probably taking direction from the police union and the union counsel, just like any other accused. The lawyer works in the best interest of the client, just like any other accused. The need to testify is not mandatory. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's opening the door to these questions as to whether or not that should change in these investigations by the IIU. Uh, our listener, Bill, is absolutely correct. The, the, the police officer who did not make a statement or did not testify didn't have to do so based on the rules set up around the IIU. But here's the bigger question I have. Before we get to the question of, of deadly interaction, and the fact that three Indigenous Manitobans were 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 shot or killed by police um, last year, or was it killed or, or shootings? I want to make sure that I got that right, Loren. I, I believe it's killed. Three okay, people okay. Just want to I just want to make sure that I, I, I'm characterizing this right. Why aren't we talking about the reasons that it gets to that? If there's a disproportionate number of deadly interactions with people police is it unreasonable to imagine and i believe the statistics would bear out that there are probably a disproportionate number of interactions period between indigenous manitobans and police which leads the question as to why we have higher unemployment indigenous manitobans than than as a percentage than other manitobans less training more poverty, more addictions, is that part of the mix here? And if we're tired of so many people don't want to hear the racism when something like this happens, I get it. But are there other issues where race, socioeconomic standing, are there other issues at play here that we're getting to the point where there's a disproportionate number of Indigenous Manitobans in prison committing crime and convicted of crime? These are the conversations we need to have, right? And so I, I, I think the listeners have come at us from a, a wide variety of angles. And so that you're looking at a deeper rooted issues there, Greg, and that needs to be discussed. There's the what happened that day that needs to be part of it. And then there's, again, the process here and whether people think that that's fair. Jeff just texted in now to say the officer did provide a statement, which is true. He did provide a statement. He declined the interview, which is his right. Yes. And he thinks that most people facing similar situations wouldn't be compelled to provide a statement or speak to police. And it's true. You can go all the way to trial and, and not ever get up in the sand and say, I decline to. You can be convicted to- and go to jail without saying a word. It's your right Absolutely. to do that as a citizen. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, it is a festival that has seen the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra perform on the diving platforms at Pan Am Pool, the basement of the Bay downtown, and on the frozen river at the Forks, on a stage filled with ice instruments, Greg. Yeah, the Winnipeg New Music Festival has always been known for its creativity and had to get creative once more to put on the festival this year. Daniel Reiskin is the WSO Music Director and Winnipeg New Music Festival Artistic Director and joins us now. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, gentlemen. Good great. morning. Good morning. It's great to have you with us. Tonight's the last night of the festival. The first night was Saturday. Second was Tuesday. How were those first two nights received? 
Oh, they were received very well. And as you mentioned, uh, we had to be really creative uh, to be able actually to put these two shows. And uh, usually the festival spans um, over more than a week with seven concerts and lots of audience attending, lots of ancillary events, and some of them really standing out, as you just uh, remembered about this crazy night at the Frozen River at minus 36. But this year, due to safety protocols and pandemic raging still, uh, we had to move everything online. Uh, but uh, the objective was not to, um, uh, you know, declare defeat and, and really um, have the festival still. And for us, it was very significant also because it's actually our 30th edition. And uh, for an, um, such an imaginative and uh, um, important event for a community to just sit and wait out, you know, was not an option. So I'm very, very glad we were able to put this uh, exciting programs uh, with the two concerts with WSO and a, and a wonderful chamber music uh, program streamed uh, by uh, Dakota Music Collective from New York. And all of these uh, events are very well received. We're looking forward to tonight with uh, a lot of great music by Fantastic Canadian composers, um, two of them are our own Winnipeggers, Jocelyn Morlock, Andrew Balfour, but also music by Harry Stafilakis, the composer in residence of WSO and Canadian uh, uh, composer Emily LeBel, plus works of two composers who really helped to shape the new music festival into what it is now, Dia Cancelli and Philip Glass. I'm so pleased to hear, Daniel, that it's been well-received because we've been talking, you know, and this festival, every time we speak with... Um, the new music about the new music festival. We're just sort of in awe of the creativity, as you mentioned, and, and remembering the the concert at on the Assiniboine at the Forks and the the ice bar and all the rest that goes into making this such a special event, and then to have to move it to this way. I have to ask, it has to be kind of hard. I mean, we talked earlier this week about you know watching movies. Um, at home instead of the theater, and at nine thirty-five, we're going to talk to a uh, former Winnipeg Jet about what it's like to play for fans, but now there's no fans. And so, what's it like for the musicians to to do it this way? I, it, it's nice to know people are watching, but it can't feel the same at all. Oh, I completely identify with the sentiments, and it's actually fun that you bring up uh, one of the Winnipeg Jets. I'm I'm a great fan myself, and and I follow them. Uh, through the app and and you know and being so close to the arena and still not being able to to, to go for for a game uh, you know to, to create the magic uh, whether it's a magic of the going to the movies or to the uh, restaurant or to the ice hockey game or to the concert it needs these two components it needs the the performer the player and the audience it takes two to tango in that case a bit more and we try to you know, stay connected to whether it's fans or our patrons through actually doing what we are known for and what we're good at, really creating the special um, emotions that will, you know, stick out and, and be remembered for, for a lot of time. But this incredible moment of silence after each performance where there's no bravo and no uh, applause, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking and uh, um, it's difficult. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of way, different kind of concentration but still, the most important thing for us is music, and uh, because you know, for us musicians, it's not a it's not a set of acquired skills that we, and it's not kind of work we do. It's for most of us, it's who we are. And not being able to express ourselves and just sit and wait till times will get better is not an option. So, 
Yes, it's different, but uh, the most important is that uh, we found, uh, you know, our way to the hearts and ears of our audiences. And more and more, it's really growing numbers. We're very encouraged by the numbers. We see that people are trusting us more and more. And we're learning. We're learning. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a learning curve. We haven't been doing that um, for never, you know. And now since October, September, we are doing that. And uh, it's it's becoming a very, very important medium of connection. And I think in the future, it's it's going to be... A kind of hybrid offering too. I mean, even now you see there's a lot of you know restaurants are doing both in person and takeaways in normal times, and hockey is streamed and both played live. But for the concert music, I think it, it is it's in the future we will see more and more of that that the concerts are being attended live and also streamed into the comfort of your own home. Well, Daniel Reiskin, Winnipeg Symphony. Orchestra music director and the artistic director for the Winnipeg New Music Festival. Uh, I'll just say that uh, when Jeff Braun and I uh, got to co-host a couple of shows as the couch potatoes sitting on a couch on stage beside you guys uh, while you're performing su- superhero theme songs and Star Wars theme songs, it was the one of the greatest honors and privileges of not just my career but of my life. Uh, which you got, you're not just bringing music into the world; it's a, a gift, of, as far as I'm concerned, of light and hope. So I'm glad that you've been able to. Find a way to bring the Winnipeg New Music Festival uh, to the city and, as you put it, not admit defeat. So thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. We very much appreciate this. Wonderful. Thank you very much for having me and uh, have a great day. Tuesday, Wayne Gretzky turned 60 years old. The great one and the Edmonton Oilers will always be connected with Winnipeg Jets hockey, Greg, for a variety of reasons, as I'm sure you'll love to tell us about. I'm just going to take a deep breath here. (laughs) Ah, Okay, here we go. Gretzky and the Oilers battled for the last ever WHA. That was the Avco Cup trophy. The Oilers became the Jets' arch nemesis when both teams moved to the National Hockey League together for the 1979-80 season. The Gretzky-led Oilers often made the Jets... One of their playoff victims on the way to four cups with Gretzky and another without 99. Wayne Gretzky scored more goals versus Winnipeg than any other NHL <laughs> team in his career. I really should stop now. The Oilers <laughs> modeled their NHL game after the Jets of the WHA and their approach to hockey. Gretzky was very nearly a member of the Jets after his first pro team. The Indianapolis Racers of the WHA folded 25 games into the 1978 season. And Winnipeg Jets fans of a certain vintage will remember this commercial, which ties Gretzky forevermore to our next guest. You can feel us coming now, a fresh look on the scene, with a whole new style of living. Light and crisp and clean. That's why now we say the age of seven up is here. Cause we love that crispy, refreshing taste. So light and crystal clear. Moving up, moving up, looking up, looking <laughs> up. Canada is turning seven up. Tastes great, Mom. Reaching up, reaching up, feeling up, feeling up. Canada is turning seven up. So that national commercial for. 7-Up, if you didn't figure it out. Featured Wayne Gretzky, he said hi to his mom. Montreal Canadiens goaltender Bunny LaRocque and Jets winger Morris Lukowicz. Good morning, Luke. Good day. So uh, how many takes did it take you for to get that commercial? (laughs) To nail it down. You know what, I I do a lot of uh, coaching with young players and uh, 
I sometimes have them watch that commercial because they, when they look at me, they find it hard to believe that this small guy actually played in the NHL. So it actually gives a little bit of credibility. And uh, it was a so much fun to do that commercial also. That's fantastic. So we wanted to discuss the effects of a boisterous crowd. And I suppose a sparse one is you had experience playing in front of both and, and the effect on on ice play. But with Gretzky's 60th birthday, uh, just maybe just a little bit about uh, Gretzky first, uh, if you don't mind, Luke. Well, he was truly amazing. And uh, his ability to get the puck and his skating style was a little bit different and it had a shiftiness to it that was uh, very, very tough for defensemen to read and really scared defensemen. And uh, that was a piece of his success is that uh, the defensemen, they backed up and it, it opened up the space in front of them where he would come down that right side so much off, down his off wing and, and then when he hit the blue light, he'd cut across. And there's just so many options that open up when he does that. And yet one one thing is uh, it was amazing when he would go into the corner and we could have a defenseman chasing him, our team, other teams. He literally had so many different fakes and moves that he could go into that corner and then come out of the puck, come out with the puck and have our, the defenseman basically hit the glass. Like he was so incredibly elusive, and uh, uh, like Lars Eric Schoberg one time got beat by him. Going, uh, Gretzky came down and fake fake beat him on the right. Next time came down fake fake beat him on the left. And I remember him sitting in the dressing room afterwards, and he says, "Like he says, I cannot believe he is the absolute best I've ever seen on a one on one." So that was a high compliment from. Uh, Schoberg and Schoberg rarely got beat by anybody. Well, I'm of the era, Morris, that I, I remember watching Gretzky. I have to apologize because Greg tells me I'm 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 far too young to remember whenever you had your name announced for a goal or assist at the Winnipeg Arena. But Greg has explained that fans would call, and I hope I do this justice, Luke. Am I getting that right? Can anyone else want to try it again? <laughs> did Did you hear it? Did it have any impact on how you played the next shift, Morris? Well, absolutely. There's, uh, I mean, one of the one of the huge thrills that I had was the outdoor game in Winnipeg, where uh, back in uh, October a few years ago was when I got introduced, and uh, thirty-five thousand people chanted that Luke, Luke, and how <laughs> like literally, I had a tear in my eye on the ice. So uh, I do remember coming out for games, and uh, up in the corner was a group of guys. And uh, called Luke's Lookout, and I, I could remember like it absolutely helped me play better hockey. I wanted to play good hockey for them. I wanted to play good hockey for the fans. So it was very, it was motivating, inspirational. And eventually, I got to meet the the guys in Luke's Look Lookout, and uh, good group, good uh, group of guys. You and the Jets won the last Avco Cup in May of 1979. The arena just must have been rocking. Would you say it was the loudest Winnipeg crowd that you played in front of? Well, that was a heck of a night. And uh, also was the celebration afterwards. It was amazing. Like uh, the people that jumped on the ice that were with us. And uh, it's it's funny how sometimes uh, we reconnect. Like I've been 
in Winnipeg uh, doing some public speaking and coaching, and then I, I might be in a bar and a guy will come over and say, hey, remember that last game where we beat uh, the Oilers and won the AFCO Cup? Um, I was the guy that jumped on the ice and got your stick. <laughs> I go, really? So it's, uh, yeah, that, was, that was truly just an amazing night, that final win. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a night to remember for so many of us, Luke, because it's uh, one of the last hockey championships in, in our city. And, of course, the Blue Bombers went through their their drought to 29 years. And so uh, those are fond memories for, for a lot of us in in our in our 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, there were some nights before you left for Boston that there were some smaller crowds in Winnipeg. Did that ever slow play down adversely impact the level of player energy on the ice? Well, yes, it can because like I love uh, packed arenas and, and if the fans aren't there, then for myself, it, uh, it was a concern like uh, what's going on. So, and yet um, for those early years in the NHL, the, the fans were amazing. Um, I truly wish uh, the Winnipeg Jets had got the the great Gretzky. Wow, like it's that one move uh, could have, uh, like Winnipeg could have had the uh, four Stanley Cups. Yeah. What do you know so about I, that? What do you know about that part of the story, Luke? I know it's a little bit of a turn here, but do you know anything about that whole notion of 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 why he ended up Gretzky ended up in Edmonton was it the the Pocklington Scalbania connection or or were the Jets leery of Gretzky because of his size because that's one of the rumors one of the urban legends in in Winnipeg was that Rudy Pillis the general manager at the time didn't like Gretzky because he was he was quote unquote too small uh, of what I've heard about it or uh, is that I I believe that is what happened that there was a meeting or a decision. Actually, Winnipeg was the powerhouse at that time in in the league, and uh, and that Winnipeg was offered Gretzky first. And that in a meeting, that Rudy said he didn't think the guy would amount to much. And uh, so it was. I mean, it's a bad decision. And I'll give uh, Gretzky credit for a, a player who wasn't huge and muscular he was quite slight there was one night when we played and he was with uh indianapolis and it was a game in indianapolis and he attempted to go around kim Claxon, and he kind of stumbled a bit and went down on his knees and kim being the uh gracious and compassionate defenseman that he was actually took a pasted gretzky into the boards while he was on his knees and I got a beautiful view of it because I was back checking at the time, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, he's dead!" And uh, like Kim really slammed him, and it ended up that uh, he just jumped right back up and he got back into the play. And I remember my thought at that time is, "Wow, he is resilient." It was one of the few times that he ever got hit really, really hard that I remembered. Um, he was well protected by Dave Semenko, God bless his soul. Uh, and uh, and yet he was absolutely difficult to hit because he was so shifty. So it's it was a huge mistake by the Jets. Uh, yeah, an, an understatement there, probably more. So we were talking too about just the the idea that he 
um, that the, the crowd can help you and, you know, make kind of help lift you up. Can the crowd also bring you down? Because I do remember also, speaking of just Gretzky, Gretzky, when he'd come play. And, and do, can you tune that out as a player just as much as you can tune in the positive? Well, I would say that if he was in our arena and the crowd was doing that, it, it got him motivated to play even better. Uh, like I talk with uh, players about how to be present and in the zone, and he spent so much of the time in that zone. There was every once in a while, though, he would he'd get arguing with the referee or he'd get arguing with our bench, or, and, and, and he would get taken out of his natural game where he played so amazing. So he, I mean, he could get distracted like anybody else, and yet if our crowd was cheering against him, I believe it would just have him play better. So um, it was, yeah, so I, I think it would only motivate him. <laughs> well, I guess uh, that uh, really uh, was a waste of energy on my part all those years of chanting <laughs> the things that I did and yelling the things that I did. Luke, thanks for this. Thanks for rekindling some memories for us and giving us some insight as to the power of the crowd as we experience the National Hockey League with, without fans, at least for the next little while yet. Really appreciate you, man. Well, and I'd just like to say I appreciate these players for because I felt that without a crowd, where are they going to be able to get their game to the competitive level that it that it can be? And they are like it is amazing the competitiveness that's in these players that even with zero crowd, they are out there giving their absolute best. And uh, you know what? the Jets can win the Stanley Cup this year. Go oh. Jets! Okay, write that one down. <laughs> Can you say it again? That sounded good. Yeah, say it again, Luke. Yeah, the Jets can win the Stanley Cup this year. They have everything they that's required. And I like this Dubois coming in. I I believe it's going to give them just even more depth in the center ice position. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to see another parade. Winnipeg Jets legend Morris Lukowicz joining us live on 680 CJOB. Luke, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.